Hello and welcome to A View from the Bench, a podcast about my experiences and perceptions in the courtroom dealing with the trial of major cases over a legal career spanning almost five decades. I'm your host, Albert McKegg, and today we will be talking about a murder that took place over a drug deal that went bad. Some of the details are gruesome, so you may want to check your audience before you get started. Before we get started, though, and because I still sit as a senior state district judge, I have to do the disclosure routine. Apologies for that, but it's a necessary obstacle to overcome. In these episodes, I will not be giving a legal opinion on the law, but merely my impression of how certain f- certain laws fit certain fact situations. Also, nothing said in this podcast is intended to show or predict how I will rule on either current or future cases. The Judicial Code of Ethics prohibits my commenting on cases pending in my court or criticizing the actions of other trial judges. All cases that I discuss have been disposed of, and I no longer have any jurisdiction or authority over those cases. With those disclosures out of the way, let's talk about a view from the bench. This is about the trial of a murder case, but the fact scenario on this case is a bit drawn out because of how it all went down. The defendant already had a record as a small-time crook who was a part-time drug dealer, a part-time thief, and just an all-around criminal. He was known to be the go-to guy for methamphetamine in his area. Meth is one of those highly addictive drugs that can easily get a person addicted to it. It is dangerous and not some innocuous recreational drug. I want to give you a caveat here, too. This story is from memory, and I may have gotten a few items out of order, and the details may be vague. The main points of the case, though, are correct, and I gleaned the information from what was almost a two-week jury trial. If you know about the case, I have not intentionally misstated the facts, but memory does fade with time on little details. Two friends, also meth users, decided to call up a drug dealer and arrange a buy for a quantity of meth. They had the dealer on speed dial, called him up on a cell phone, and asked about a time and place for the buy. It was to be the dealer's house in a very small rural town, almost a little settlement. When the call ended, the two buyers started talking about how they were going to steal the drug dealer's stash of drugs and money. Their problem was that they had not actually ended the call and the line was still open. The dealer was able to hear the entire conversation about how the two buyers were going to take his stash of drugs and money. Well, obviously, he was going to be prepared for that. That evening, when the two buyers called the dealer to confirm the buy, the dealer changed the location of the buy to a small farm outside of town where he had a deer camp. The change of location didn't alarm the two buyers, as apparently they were familiar with the place. Basically, it was a small farm with a small shack on it, surrounded by junk and an outdoor fire pit. The place was fenced, as is most farms and ranches in our part of Texas, and there were some cleared areas and there was some wooded areas. It was located down a small dirt road off a larger highway. The two buyers arrived and the dealer, a friend of his, and the two buyers were standing around the campfire outside when the dealer pulled a thirty-eight pistol on the two buyers and the friend pulled a sawed-off four-ten single-shot shotgun. The dealer told the two what he had heard and what he was going to do about it, and with that he shot the buyer who made the phone call with the thirty-eight pistol. The man dropped to the ground. The dealer then held the gun on the other buyer and told him to shoot his friend laying on the ground. The shotgun was handed to the surviving buyer, who was told to either shoot the guy or he would be shot himself. The surviving buyer then took the shotgun and indeed did shoot his friend, who was most likely already dead anyway. The reason the dealer did that was to make the surviving buyer an accomplice 
in the murder, which the dealer figured would keep him from snitching on him. The dealer tied the hands of the surviving buyer, I'll call him buyer too, took his truck keys and left him outside by the fire while dealer and his friend went in the house to enjoy some of their product. Buyer too was desperate and managed to work his hands loose from the ropes. There was no key in the truck, but it being an older model truck and buyer two being a thief anyway, he knew how to hotwire it to get it started. So he did. When it started, buyer two jumped in and tore out to get away. The gate to the deer camp farm was closed, but buyer two crashed through it to escape and in the process broke out the truck's headlights. Fearing for his life, he drove madly down the country road in the dark to the highway and raced down that road a ways until he lost control of the vehicle and crashed it into some trees and bushes along the road. Fortunately for him, the truck was far enough off the road that it was not visible if the dealer and his friend came by chasing buyer two. Meanwhile, Buyer 2 started running through the woods and brush in a desperate attempt to get away in case he was being hunted, and in the process, he was getting cut up and scratched by the brush and thorns there in the forest. Buyer 2 came upon a house and began banging on the back door, awakening a man and wife in the house. Buyer 2 gave them a story about a car wreck, which was partly true, and he managed to get a ride to a hiding place. Apologies here because I don't remember all the details of his further escape, but suffice it to say, he did escape. Meanwhile, back at the deer camp, Dealer and his friend decided they needed to get rid of the body which was still laying by the campfire. By this time, the man was decidedly dead. The two loaded the body into the dealer's pickup truck and piled a bunch of junk and debris and old wood over the body and went to town and picked up Dealer's common-law wife. The three started driving the back roads in the area looking for a good place to dump the body and finally decided on a large culvert down a dead-end road. They stuffed the dead man into the culvert and went back home. Later that same night, deciding that the hiding place was not so good, the three went back and retrieved the body, once again putting it into the truck bed and covering it with the junk and wood. They began to drive around once again looking for a good place to stash the body. At one point, they pulled into a convenience store for fuel. When they came back out from inside the store, they discovered that the body had been leaking blood out the back of the truck onto the concrete. Well, that alarmed them, and they took off again looking for a place. Eventually, the trio traveled through three different counties before they got the idea of going to a ranch the dealer had worked on. It was very isolated and had a creek running through the back of it. They went down a ranch road to the creek, which was down in the ranch itself, dumped the body into the creek, and left. They found a remote location and piled all the junk wood from the truck bed into a pile and set it afire to get rid of the bloody evidence. That done, the trio went back home and crashed. The next day, the dead man's sister began to look for her brother and called around to several of his known associates, including the dealer and buyer two. Buyer two wasn't answering his phone, and dealer played clueless. Sister wasn't so sure about the story she was getting and set about contacting more people and eventually law enforcement. A local police officer who knew about the dealer's activities and also knew the decedent and his habits went to the dealer's home to inquire about the man. Obviously, the officer was stonewalled. Suspicion was there, but there was simply no proof of what may have happened, if anything. Sometime later, Dealer, his friend, and Dealer's wife decided to steal a rancher's farm equipment from a remote pasture. Remember, I'd said they were small-time crooks. Well, true to form, the theft was attempted at night, and a tractor and other items were stolen and hidden. 
The investigation into that theft began, and there was some evidence that Dealer was involved. I don't recall the details, but the local law enforcement was very good and very thorough, and before long, they had enough information to get an arrest warrant on the trio. Details are vague, but the dealer and his friend made bond on the tractor theft case and got out of jail. The woman could not make bond, and apparently dealer was not interested in getting her out of jail. An important footnote here is that wife had a child, and after the arrest on the tractor theft, she had to leave the child with a relative. She was worried sick about the child and about going to prison. She already had a criminal record, and another felony conviction would send her to prison for some term of years. Knowing that, she went to the officers at the jail and asked to speak to an investigator. The investigator she spoke to is really one of the best investigators I've met in my many years in and around the court system. He did the interview with the woman correctly, reading her the proper warnings and recording the interview. The woman wanted to make a deal to avoid prison, but initially did give enough information to the investigator that he knew that she had legitimate information on the missing and now dead man. Over a period of time, arrangements were made through the district attorney's office that if the woman's information turned out to be legitimate, she would get immunity from prosecution in return for her testimony. Meanwhile, the woman was still in jail when she wasn't out with the officers, and she had several phone calls to the dealer from jail, and those phone calls were recorded. With the woman in tow, officers set out to look for the body. As you can imagine, since most of the back road travels by the trio trying to hide the body took place at night, it was more of a scavenger hunt than a going directly to the body. Officers did go to the deer camp where some evidence was found, but keep in mind that this was a deer camp and there were all kinds of expended shell casings from handguns, rifles, and shotguns laying around, so it wasn't one of those single bullet casing kind of cases. The officers also located the original culvert and a bit more evidence was found. A citizen saw the officers driving around and reported that a junk fire had been made on his place and he showed them where the junk from the truck was burned. Yet one more piece of evidence was given. A backpack was found on the side of a road and that was eventually tied to the dead man. One more piece of evidence that he was missing and presumed dead. Little by little, piece by piece, officers were closing in on the dealer and his friend. Finally, in describing the ranch where the body was dumped, the officers figured out where to go look, and sure enough, a badly decomposed body was found with parts of it scattered along the bed of the creek. Apparently, wild predators had come upon the body. That was the final key to the puzzle, and the dealer and his friend were arrested and indicted by the grand jury for murder. There were over 40 witnesses who testified during the trial. Obviously, the lead investigator laid out the case in great detail over a lengthy time of testimony. His trial testimony was as good as his investigative work, and he did a very thorough job on the witness stand. The woman testified as well. It turns out that she and the dealer were not actually married, and there was a question about whether she was a common-law wife. That was important because the dealer claimed she could not testify against him because of spousal immunity. The only problem with that is that she was the one who could claim immunity, not him, and she didn't want to. She wanted to testify so she could stay free from the charges. A forensic anthropologist testified in identifying the body. As you can imagine, and I won't go into detail, the remains were not in good condition, and it took the forensic anthropologist as well as a forensic medical examiner to lay the foundation for identification of the victim. 
All the various officers involved in the search and investigation were brought in for their small pieces of the emerging puzzle as the case slowly came together for the jury. The dead man's sister testified to what she had done to look for her brother and how she had coordinated with law enforcement. The couple at the house testified about Buyer 2 and what they saw and heard about the situation. The truck was recovered from Buyer 2's crash. As I said, there were many witnesses and the case was slowly woven together. Buyer 2 was given limited immunity and testified as an eyewitness to the murder. He recounted his escape and how he hid from the dealer after the murder. The woman was given immunity and testified to the efforts to dispose of the body, the search for the body, the tractor theft, and her involvement in the entire mess. Dealer's friend had been indicted, charged, and entered a plea to the murder in return for a reduced sentence. I don't recall the length of sentence now, but it was certainly less than the maximum, but it was adequate. But under the circumstances, the maximum would have been life in prison. The attorneys for the defendant did a great job digging into each witness, looking for flaws, looking for legal points, and doing what good defense attorneys do, protecting their clients' constitutional rights. The prosecutors put together a thorough and believable case. From my position of having been involved in around 300 jury trials at the time, this was one of the better cases I am familiar with from both the prosecution and the defense. It was in great detail and very thorough. Ultimately, the jury convicted the dealer. Prior to trial, the dealer had elected to have the jury assess punishment in the event he was found guilty. I have an upcoming episode that will describe the anatomy of a jury trial, and that will help you understand that particular process. The jury sentenced the dealer to life in prison, and he will not be eligible for parole for at least 30 years. Drugs, alcohol, and crime all go together. I've never seen anything good come out of that combination. If you hear this episode and you were part of the case, I hope you will forgive any errors I've made. All the officers and officials involved did a tremendous job on a very complex case, and the local citizens should be very pleased with members of their law enforcement teams. Well, I'll see you next time right here. Until then, may God bless you and keep you. May his face shine upon you and give you peace. (music) 